As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody and welcome to the most exciting thing you've experienced probably all week. So I am really thrilled to share with you a new type of podcast that I hope to be doing every week. The plan right now is to have one of these out every Thursday, and what it will be is a answer question format. And this is something that I did when I was a student, and if you've read. The Nursing School Thrive Guide, or parts of my blog at straightanursingstudent.com. You know that when I was a student, I was obviously very stressed and rushed for time, and constantly sitting at my desk, constantly studying, and it kind of got to be a real drag. So after a while, I had this fantastic idea to record myself asking questions, having a pause. So that as I was later listening to the recording, I could kind of quiz myself and answer the questions. So we're gonna do that here, and you're gonna love it. I promise. So the the deal with this, okay? Because what doing this did for me was that it freed me from my desk, and it was the most liberating experience after sitting there for months on end. So I started going out and doing more exercise. I was able to. Do my laundry, things like that. So, if you're going to listen to one of these quiz podcasts, then the deal is that you got to get up and move your body. I talk a lot about self care on my website, and you got to go for a walk. You got to get on the treadmill, be outside, do something with your body while you're also exercising your mind, and you'll feel great. I promise. So today. We're going to be talking about the respiratory system and kind of the basics. So this is what I would call a level one quiz for maybe someone who's in their med surge class or looking for a basic review.、Um, if you recall, this past week I posted an episode about acute respiratory distress syndrome, and that's a little bit more advanced. And I didn't want to jump right into having the first quiz be so advanced. So we are going to stick with the respiratory theme, but I'm hoping that it will be a little bit more basic and all inclusive for this first one. But in general, the quizzes each week will kind of follow whatever the topic was、uh, earlier in the week, which will be hopefully on Sundays, maybe Mondays if things get crazy with my work schedule. That's the plan right now. We'll see how we go. Okay, so this is how it works. I ask a question. I pause for. Little bit of time, long enough for you to think and say out loud. So you're using that part of your brain. Say out loud the answer. I don't care if people look at you funny. It's okay. They're not nearly as smart as you. And then I will tell you what the answer is, and you can see if you were right. Okay. So without further ado, here's some basic questions about the respiratory system that are going to come up in your exams and in your clinicals. First of all, 
How do you calculate a pack year history when you're talking about someone smoking? It's packs per day times the number of years that they have smoked. What do we mean when we talk about the orthopnea position? And I'm sorry about my pronunciation, orthopnea. Exactly. It's when breathing becomes easier when the patient sits up. A lot of times you'll have patients who sleep on a whole bunch of pillows at night and you can that word will come up when you're discussing how many pillows do you sleep on at night. And if they say four, you know they got a lung problem. How do you assess for tactile frematis? So to do this, you're gonna place your hands, like your palms and your fingers on the chest wall, and you're gonna have the patient say 99, and you'll feel it if they have frematis. What is a normal respiratory rate for an adult? Most examples will say 10 to 20, some will say 12 to 20. Anything in that ballpark is correct, so good for you. Let's talk about auscultating breath sounds for a moment. Let's say you're auscultating bronchial slash tracheal breath sounds. What do you expect the pitch to be? That's gonna be a high pitch. What about the amplitude? It will be loud. What about the inspiratory, expiratory duration? Your inspiratory is gonna be less than the expiratory at a one to two ratio. And where would your location be for this bronchial breath sound? Normally you're gonna hear it around the trachea and the larynx. If you hear this sound somewhere else, that's pathophysiological. Let's go to the next one. You are listening for bronchovascular breath sounds. What will be the pitch? That's right, moderate, very good. How about the amplitude, how loud? That's also moderate, excellent. How about the duration? When we talk about the duration, we're talking about the inspiration as it relates to the expiration. Yes, in this breath sound, they will sound equal. And where will you listen for this breath sound? You're gonna listen over the margin bronchi for this. Now let's talk about vesicular breath sounds. What is the pitch? Yes, it is low pitched. What about the amplitude? Yes, the amplitude for a vesicular breath sound is soft. Look at you, you're so smart. How about the duration, the inspiration as it relates to the expiration? In a vesicular breath sound, the inspiration is going to be longer than the expiration at about a two and a half to one ratio. That's a 2.5 to one ratio. And where will you hear this? Its normal location is the peripheral lung fields. Excellent. Okay, let's move on to something else. One of the things you might do is listen with the 
stethoscope, excuse me, to the chest wall as the patient repeats a phrase. And these all have different medical terminologies for them and they are going to be on your adult assessment exam. So how would you assess for bronchophony? Bronchophony. The patient will repeat 99 as you listen at their chest wall with the stethoscope. What will this sound like for a normal finding? For a normal finding of bronchophony, when the patient repeats the word 99, it will sound muffled. Muffled is normal. What will it sound like if it's abnormal? If it's abnormal, the voice will sound clear. How do you assess for egophony? I hope I said that right. E-G-O-P-H-O-N-Y, egophony. To assess for this, you'll have the patient say E-E-E. And what will it sound like if it is a normal finding? It'll sound like E. How about if it's abnormal? It'll sound more like ah if it's abnormal or A. How do you assess for whispered pectoriloquy? Oh my goodness, I butchered that. Whispered pectoriloquy. To assess for this, your patient will whisper one, two, three. What will it sound like in a normal finding? In a normal finding, it will be muffled. How about in an abnormal finding? It'll be clear and distinct, and this is abnormal when you're assessing for whispered pectoriloquy. And try saying that a few times really fast. What is the medical term used to describe a feeling of bubble wrap under the skin? It actually has two commonly used names or terms. It is crepitus, also sometimes called subcutaneous emphysema or just sub-Q emphysema. Let's talk a little bit about different respiratory patterns. So we talked about the rate of normal being 12 to 20 or 10 to 20 by some references. What about if you have a patient who is breathing kind of at different depths and then stops with periods of apnea and then repeats that cycle over and over, what is that called? That is Shane Stokes respirations. And then if you have a type of respiratory pattern where there is no pattern, there's periods of apnea, there's deep breaths, there's shallow breaths, they're all mixed up, there's no pattern, except that it's an irregular pattern, what do you call that? Those are biots respirations, and both of those are bad, by the way. What about deep tachypnic breathing? When you have a patient breathing very deeply and quickly, typically that's a Kussmaul respiration and that is associated with diabetic ketoacidosis. What is the FiO2 
of room air with no supplemental oxygen? Exactly, it's 21%. What is the term to describe the process of moving gases in and out of the lungs via inspiration and exhalation? That's simply ventilation. What is the term to describe the movement of oxygen and carbon dioxide from an area of higher concentration to an area of lower concentration across the alveolar capillary membrane? That is diffusion. And ventilation and diffusion are two very important concepts in the respiratory system. How many lobes in the left lung? Two. And how many lobes in the right lung? Three. Excellent. I told you we were going to go over the basics. Of the two main stem bronchi, which is shorter and wider? The right main stem is shorter and wider than the left main stem. This comes into play when you start talking about intubating patients and the risk for aspiration. And if someone aspirates, where does it most likely go? Typically into that right main stem and into the right lung. Usually, not always. Okay, I hope you are actually out for a walk and not eating because we're going to talk about sputum for a little bit. Every nurse has their thing that disgusts them beyond belief that they gag when they have to deal with it. And for a lot of us, sputum is it. So prepare yourself. Let's talk about the different colors and properties of sputum. What are you going to suspect with white or clear sputum? What kind of pathophysiology? You'll see white or clear sputum with things like a cold, a viral infection, or a bronchitis. How about yellow or green sputum? That's typically sign of a bacterial infection. How about black sputum? That's when you're going to be looking at smoke inhalation or maybe coal dust inhalation. How about sputum that is rust colored? If your sputum is rust colored, it may have a little blood in it. Um, it could be a patient with TB or a pneumococcal pneumonia. What about bright red or dark purple sputum? That's basically blood. You've got blood in your sputum, your lungs are bleeding for some reason. How about pink and frothy sputum with some shortness of breath? Yep, that's classic sign of pulmonary edema. And here's one, foul, fetid smelling sputum. That's gonna be a bacterial pneumonia and you'll get a whiff of this in the ICU a lot when those patients are on ventilators. The sputum smell can be pretty intense. So there you go. Let's move on to some other less disgusting topics. We talked about this a little bit a moment ago, but describe what orthopnea is. 
Exactly. That's difficulty breathing when the patient is lying down, and typically they will use pillows at night so that they are propped up. What about paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea? I paused a while there because the answer is a little bit longer. It's when the patient has shortness of breath that wakes them up in the middle of, of the night, usually in this like panic mode that they can't, they can't breathe. They'll sit bolt upright and that pulls the fluid that was suffocating them down lower into the lung bases and they're able to breathe a little easier. These people will often sleep on a bunch of pillows. Okay, let's move on and talk about some of the common respiratory disorders of the lower airway. These are going to be any disorders from the tracheobronchial tree and below. So this is the trachea, that right and left main stem bronchi, the segmental bronchi, the terminal bronchi, and the lung tissue. So there's a lot of real estate there and a lot of things that could go wrong. One of the most common that you'll see is asthma. So let's talk about asthma for a minute. Take just a moment and see if you can describe in one sentence what asthma is. Okay, so when you are thinking about asthma, what you need to think about four things. It's a disorder of the bronchial airways characterized by periods of reversible, one, bronchospasm, two, mucosal edema, three, increased mucus production, and four, airway inflammation. What are some triggers for asthma? Just name a few, and then we'll go over what some of them are. Okay, so one of the biggies are environmental factors, like pollen is big, dust mites, uh, mold, animal dander, smoke, pollution. I read somewhere that even cockroaches can cause people to have asthma attacks. I don't want to know how or why. Uh, many people have exercise-induced asthma, so that could be a trigger. Even abrupt changes in temperature can cause asthma to be triggered strong odors, which is why we don't wear perfume in the hospital. Um, maybe just getting very excited, very excitatory state. Beta blockers can trigger asthma attacks and so can aspirin. The main things that you'll need to know for your exams are the environmental factors, probably the exercise, the temp changes, and the strong odors would be the most common things that I would see. What are some of the clinical manifestations of asthma? What are you going to see on your patient? So probably the first thing you said was wheezing. Excellent. They'll also be short of breath. They will have increased respiratory effort and possibly a cough. And if they're starting to turn blue, which is a clinical manifestation of asthma, that means things have gone really, really, really far. So when your patient is being worked up for asthma, they're gonna do some pulmonary function tests. And this could come up on 
a med surge exam about what you might expect to see with these pulmonary function tests. So when they do this test, they're gonna check for a peak expiratory flow rate. Will it be increased or decreased in a patient with asthma? Their peak expiratory flow rate will be decreased. Very good. How about their forced expiratory volume? Their forced expiratory volume will also be decreased. How about their forced vital capacity? Will that be increased or decreased? The forced vital capacity will also be decreased. How about the functional residual capacity? That one will be increased. How about total lung capacity? Also increased, very good. And the last one is the residual volume. Also increased. So you'll notice that things having to do with flow and volume are down, but the things having to do with capacity are up. And this is because air gets trapped in the lungs in asthma. Let's talk for a moment about the different asthma medications. What is a beta agonist going to do? So a beta agonist will stimulate the beta adrenergic receptors. I can't speak, I promise. And this will dilate the airways and help reverse the spasm. What would be a common beta agonist that you would see? Albuterol, right, it's probably the most commonly used one. What would nebulized atropine do? It's going to also reverse the spasm. Atropine is, remember, an anticholinergic and it's going to block the parasympathetic system. And what kind of drugs are we going to use to decrease inflammation in a patient with asthma? Exactly, IV steroids. So this is obviously your patient that's coming to the hospital and they're having such bad asthma attacks that they need to be hospitalized. They're gonna get some IV steroids while they're there. What type of drug is Flovent or Pulmacort? These are inhaled corticosteroids and they're used to help also control the inflammation. What kind of a drug is chromalin with a C? Chromalin is also used to control inflammation. It is a mast cell stabilizer that will suppress the release of bronchoconstrictive substances out of those mast cells. And lastly, what about the drug Singulair? What kind of drug is that? Exactly, that is a leukotriene modifier and that blocks the action of leukotrienes. Very good. So let's talk a little bit about the typical regimen for an asthma patient. They're usually going to have more than one type of inhaler to use at home. 
and it's really important that they understand when to use each type. So what type are they going to be using on a daily basis? Yes, so on a daily basis, they're gonna be using their long-acting meds, such as the Singulair, the Flovent, and maybe a combo drug like Advair that has a corticosteroid in it as well as a bronchodilator in it. So these meds are gonna help keep the inflammation down. What about when they need relief from an asthma attack right now? That is when they're going to reach for a quick relief medication such as the albuterol and the atrovent. These are your bronchodilators, very good. Let's move on now to COPD. What does COPD stand for? That is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Excellent. Now tell me what it is. It's actually a combination of disorders. Which disorders is it a combination of? It's a combination of asthma, emphysema, and chronic bronchitis. So looking at the emphysema component, what will your patient's chest who has emphysema look like? They're going to have that barrel chest, that increased AP diameter. Very good. And when you percuss their chest, what's it going to sound like? You'll have that hyper resonance on percussion. Excellent. What will your emphysema patient's lungs look like on a chest x-ray? There's two kind of classic signs. You'll see overinflation of the lungs and a flattened diaphragm. How about their heart? What might their heart look like? Oftentimes, a patient with emphysema will have an enlarged heart and or an enlarged right ventricle. How about if you look at their fingers? You're probably going to see some clubbing of the fingers and maybe even some very uh, slight cyanosis. It could be severe, but it might be just very slight. And then chronic bronchitis, just as a quick review, this is an inflammation of the airways um, combined with a whole bunch of increased mucus production, and then the air is going to have a hard time getting in and out of the lungs, and it's typically caused by cigarettes, big surprise. So I'm just going to go through some of these real quick. Your patient with chronic bronchitis is going to be short of breath. What do you think they're going to, what kind of cough they're going to have, a productive or unproductive cough? Yeah, it's going to be productive with all that sputum production, mucus production they've got. They're going to have a productive cough with a lot of sputum. They're going to have an intolerance to exercise. They may wheeze and have a prolonged expiration. They'll be hypoxic and hypercapnic and get frequent lung infections. So let's say you've got your patient who has COPD and you're taking care of them. And one of your nursing diagnoses is ineffective airway clearance. Name off at least two things that you could do for ineffective airway clearance for this patient.
Okay, so very good. So here are some things you could do for ineffective airway clearance in your COPD patient. You could give meds that loosen secretions and make them easier to mobilize, aka cough up and spit out. Um, you can encourage fluids that will also help loosen secretions. You can do pulmonary hygiene. Basically, this is encouraging a lot of coughing and deep breathing for your patient. And you can place them in high Fowler's position. If the patient isn't able to clear their own secretions, you can obviously suction them as needed. Your next nursing diagnosis for your patient with COPD is impaired gas exchange. What are a few things that you could do for that? So for starters, you could give bronchodilators, very good. You could put them on a little bit of oxygen. You're obviously going to monitor their pulse oximetry and their lung sounds as well. How about the nursing diagnosis for this patient of activity intolerance? Lots of patients that you deal with will have activity intolerance um, and the care is essentially the same. You're going to provide rest periods, cluster care, and monitor them for increased respiratory effort and decreased oxygen levels when they are exerting themselves. How about for imbalanced nutrition less than? What would be a few interventions for that? So with these patients, a lot of times, and especially the patients with severe emphysema component, they're going to have very high calorie needs because they're working so hard to breathe all the time. Their metabolisms are actually really amped up. That's why you'll see these people with really skinny arms and legs because they're muscle wasting. Their bodies are trying to um, basically go after any source of energy that they can. So you're going to encourage small, frequent, and high calorie meals. You're also going to be um, instructing the patient to take some rest periods while they're eating so that they can get their calories in. Let's move on to talking about pneumonia for a moment. So this is a pretty common medical diagnosis that you'll see on a med surge floor or even a medical ICU. It's an inflammatory process in the lung parenchyma, which is gonna result in some increased fluid in that interstitial space and the alveoli. Pneumonia can be caused by lots of different things. This could be a bacteria, a fungus, a protozoa, a virus, or aspiration of a foreign substance. You'll often see aspiration pneumonia, and this is when typically someone has aspirated their gastric contents, and this is usually pretty bad because of the very low pH of those gastric contents, they do pretty severe damage to the delicate lungs. So what would you think of as some symptoms and signs of pneumonia? Try to name at least three or four. Okay, so you're gonna have fever, they may have chills and sweats, they could have chest pain as they're breathing, so not cardiac chest pain, but pleuritic chest pain, a headache, a productive cough, hemoptysis even, which is coughing up blood, dyspnea, which is shortened of 
shortness of breath, and some fatigue. What are some risk factors for pneumonia? There are actually quite a lot, so we'll just go through them really quickly. Um, smoking or history of smoking, having lung cancer or COPD, um, having frequent upper respiratory infections could cause you to be more predisposed to pneumonia. Immobility is a big one, which is why after surgeries and things, we really want people to get up and move. Intubation, being on a ventilator, and being elderly. So when you talk about pneumonia prevention, Name a few things that you as the nurse can do to help prevent pneumonia in your patient. And let's assume they are not on a ventilator. So there are actually quite a few things you can do, and I apologize if I didn't give you quite enough time to list everything you know, because I know you know this stuff. But real quick, let's just go through them. It's good hand hygiene, um, encouraging fluid intake. That'll help keep those secretions nice and loose so they can cough them up. Repositioning the patient every two hours or getting them to increase their mobility as able. Basically, sitting up in a chair, getting up for a walk are all excellent ways to help decrease pneumonia. You want to facilitate coughing and deep breathing. You may have to control pain in order to get the patient to willingly cough and take a deep breath. You will want to reduce aspiration risk by sitting the patient upright for eating and drinking. And if there's any question about your patient's ability to swallow, you need to put in for a swallow evaluation. You don't want to mess around with an aspiration. And getting them the pneumonia vaccine. Very good. So moving on, describe in a sentence or so, what is atelectasis? Atelectasis is essentially a condition in which the lungs aren't fully expanding and the alveoli are basically collapsed. Not all the alveoli, otherwise you would be in severe respiratory distress. I mean, you can be really bad off from atelectasis, but what you'll typically see is atelectasis in the lung bases, and this is usually caused by what? Usually caused when the patient declines or refuses or neglects taking those nice deep breaths. Though it can be caused also by a mucus plug, a foreign body aspiration, even lung cancer. For the most part though, what you're going to see is atelectasis related to shallow breathing, secondary to pain is a really, really common one, or weakness. Okay, so we've been going for about 35 minutes. I think that's enough for a study session. I think you guys did fantastic. The great thing about these Q&As is that you can listen to them over and over. And hopefully you get better at answering the questions each time that you go. And I hope it inspires you to make your own Q&A audio for all your different subjects. I really found it to be supremely, supremely helpful. So... Quick reminder to subscribe to the podcast, Straight A Nursing, 
on iTunes if you haven't already. Please leave a review so that and a ranking or a rating so that we rank better, more students can find us, more students can get help, and it would just make me really happy to know that you like it. And if you have any feedback, constructive or otherwise, shoot me an email, straightanurse at gmail.com. I would love to hear it, or you can go onto the website and leave feedback there. I will continue to try to improve the production quality. I realize Straight A Nursing Podcast Studio is, you know, it's not CNN, but it's uh, it's my office, basically, and I'm doing my best. And I did get a fancy new microphone, and it's cool headphones, so I'm hoping that as the podcast grows, we can continue to improve things and make it even more awesome for you guys. So you did great. Good job. Finish your exercise and go home and continue being kind to yourself. Take care. Be safe out there. This podcast is a production of straightanursingstudent.com. Copyright Mo Media. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment.